The following is a production of Entertainment Rigging Services. Son, you know your father was a rigger, a rigger was he. Son, the shoes you have to fill are bigger, as big as can be. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 13 of Shackles, Burlap, and Lies. Today I have a good friend of mine, Mr. Adrian Forbes-Black of Area 4 Industries. How are you doing today? I'm good. I like the way you've made me uh, episode 13. Should I take offense to that, or is that? I don't know. You can choose how you take that. It's either good luck or bad luck. We'll find out in, you know, an hour to 90 minutes. As usual, first question, who are you? Uh, as you said, my name is Adrian Forbes Black, uh, quite long. Uh, back in the day, I was just known as boring old Adrian Black, and then I got married, and there's a big, long, long story behind that, but it, you know, sounds kind of good, especially in America. For... So, uh, how old am I? I think I'm 44, but I think we all stopped counting at a certain point. Uh, I am uh, Vice President of Sales and Marketing for Area 4 Industries America, and also Tomcat and James Thomas Engineering. Um, and I'll probably get more into what all that really means in a minute, I'm guessing. Uh, but that's what I do. Uh, I live uh, in just outside Los Angeles in Southern California. Um, as you can tell from my accent, that is not originally where I am from. Uh, but I was originally brought up um, in Birmingham, uh, England, United Kingdom. Um, and for any of you that don't know Birmingham. They're probably the closest equivalent, I guess, would probably be Detroit. Uh, Birmingham was Motor City. Um, if you've ever owned or driven in a Jaguar or a Land Rover or back in the day an MG or an Austin, whatever, that, that, that was Birmingham. We really were the Detroit. And kind of unfortunately, it kind of went the same way that Detroit there did for a while. Um, but that's where I was brought up and that's kind of the industrial heartland of the UK. And that's kind of what sort of got me stuck into what we do, uh, what I do rather and the trust side of it. Cause a lot of it sort of originated out of that area. So that's who I am. So that kind of leads well into the, the question I usually ask is how did you get into the entertainment business? Now, obviously at this point, listeners have realized you're not necessarily a rigor, but you have been heavily involved in an industry that riggers cannot live without, which is, well, now trust, but you've had a, a long career in the entertainment business. Talk about how you first got into the entertainment business and the, the first positions or the first companies you worked with. Okay. So um, I had no, I think like a lot of us, I don't think any of us really had this mad intent, especially those of us of over a certain age, you know, obviously we've got a different generation coming through now that kind of understand what this industry is and, and there is somewhat easier path, uh, to, to the industry. Whereas I don't think when any of us started, um, you know, 25 plus years ago, they're, they're just, you know, I think we barely thought that this industry existed. We would go to gigs as probably, you know, young teenagers or whatnot and and it would just magically happen in a peer and we'd be like oh that's cool but probably never ever thought about doing it because there was always this perception of the the word roadie which is a word that i kind of really hate um but um 
you know, we just, I don't think to any of us, it was really a sort of a consideration of something that we, we would be involved in or whatever. So my story was, was that um, in the UK, we have them in the US, but they're kind of a different vibe. In the UK, we have a thing called a grammar school. So um, at the age of 11 um, or more now, 12, they kind of ask your parents, hey, you know, he, seem, he or she seems pretty smart. Do you want to do this thing? And it was, it was a test called the 11 plus. Um, and if you take it and you pass it, you can, um, by your own choice, go to this thing called a grammar school, which are normally um, single sex schools, um, not what we'd call co-ed. Um, and normally, you know, it's it sort of taking, you know, the smarter kids and whatnot. And the idea was historically was that they would push these kids then to either go into um, to do university. And this was obviously before university was sort of, you know, perceived as a God-given right um, and, and, and or sort of pushed into sort of military schools and things like that. And if you look at the history of the UK, you know, a lot of these people, if they didn't go to a private school or something, a lot of the time they went to grammar school. So I, I, I somehow managed to get into grammar school um, and generally just kind of hated it. Um, you know, the single sex thing, I was very sort of social from that point of view. Um, I really did, didn't dislike, I disliked it. Um, it was very authoritarian very strict. I remember once, you know, getting acing this test in something and then, you know, getting screamed at because my handwriting wasn't very good. You know, it was that kind of, you know, right. situation and it kind of just demoralized me. And, and I sort of, I remember from about the age of about 13 onwards sort of realizing this really what this whole education thing, you know, like this really wasn't for me. I don't know how I'd have been if I'd have gone to in, in, in inverted commas, a normal school or what? I don't know. I probably would have gotten a little bit more out of it from a social point of view, if nothing else. But I just disliked it. Um, and, and as far as I was concerned, I was just counting down the days until I could really leave school. Um, and, and, you know, the idea was to try and get as reasonable grades as possible and then go get a job. Um, I, I sort of had inclinations of joining the military at some point. So I'd got pet. My grandfather was in the RAF during World War II and had had some done some cool things and stuff like that. So there was some inkling of trying to do something like that. But again, I think the authoritarian side of it, you know, at school kind of knocked that out of me pretty quickly. So uh, back then um, you could actually leave school in the UK at 16, um, which, you know, I've now got a 16 year old son. So looking at him and, and thinking about what I was like at that age and whatnot, it's quite an interesting experience. But uh, I left school at 16, um, realized that, to do kind of what I really wanted to do. I probably needed to get some kind of decent, some other qualifications. You do have to specialize in the UK relatively early. It's not like a general high school diploma. You do have to have some specialization. Um, so I decided to go to college to go and get what they call a BTEC, um, which is like a two year kind of adder that, that could lead you then into going to get a degree or something like that. But as far as I was concerned, I wasn't, you know, I didn't want to get a degree. I just wanted to get this two year class under my belt and then and then move on so went to the local community college um started that did that for a while um was doing electronic engineering um and came across this thing called boolean algebra which just absolutely confused the living crap out of me and i remember having this like moment where i'm like i can't do this this is just you know i need to go and get a job so i sort of went home and i was still just about living at home. Um, I think I moved out very quick. As soon as I started earning money, I think I moved out. Um, and that, you know, I didn't, it wasn't like I didn't get on my parents or something. Again, I just wanted to do my own thing. So, uh, 
left college, went to mom and dad and said, hey, <laughs> I'm leaving college. And they said, uh, yeah, okay, we better get a job. So I said, okay, I'll get a job. They go, you got a month, find a job, we'll get your ass back to college. So I said, okay. So I just started, you know, in the UK, we have these cool things called job centers, um, which is kind of like a combined sort of welfare office and, and, and place where you, back in the day, you would go to find a job. Obviously nowadays it's all more internet based, but you know, that was back in the day when you walked in and there were little, the little boards on the, the wall and you know, there were cards with, you know, job details and job descriptions and company names. So I remember going to interview and then one of the first, I think it was, it may have even been the first one I did. Um, and it was a company called LSD. And I thought, this sounds cool. I can do this. Um, and it was uh, as an office junior uh, at a, this company called LSD that, for those of you that don't know or of a certain age, it was called it was Light and Sound Design. Um, and they were just looking for, a, you know, a kid, just looking for somebody to do filing and, and make coffee and tea and, you know, do all those crappy jobs that, you know, nobody else wanted to do. So I remember going in and I interviewed and uh, I got the job. So, you know, a couple of days later I started and that was early 93. Um, so I was, I think I'd maybe just turned 17 by then. I think I was like a couple of months into 17. So, you know, I sort of generally got thrown in. Um, and uh, back in the day, again, you know, for those of you that, that aren't old enough to remember, LSD, you know, they were, you know, they were it. Um, it was them and, and really sort of very light production services, VLPS. Um, they were the sort of big guys. Um, and, you know, I, I, I remember sort of interacting with all these people that, you know, now I know, you know, who they were and what they were doing and everything. It was very cool. And, and I got exposed to a bunch of different things. Um, I, was, I was mainly helping out um, on the trust sales side of it. Yeah, it's kind of my first introduction to trust but i was also responsible for freighting around um at the time lsd developed the first non sort of really very light moving head which was called the icon uh, which again you know anybody that was back in the day would know what a sort of big leap that was as far as you know doing something that was not a very light um so i was responsible for shipping all these icon systems around the world to you know rental houses and to their sister company in the U in the u.s so I got sort of exposed to the freight side of it and a bit of the moving light side of it. And, and then we bought this company that made film and TV lighting because we managed to get a contract for, for the Olympic Games. So I got sort of exposed to, to that. Um, you know, I remember sort of packing these massive, you know, back in the day, HMI fixtures that were bigger than I were kind of thing and, and you know, whatever. So it was kind of, a, you know, it was a, it was a really interesting sort of start point i guess because i literally did get exposed to all of these different kind of kind of similar background to you i think ethan that you know you got sort of exposed to the lighting side of it as well and and you know right. some of the other sort of principles um and and sort of got to feel your way around it and kind of feel for what you know you liked and what you know you didn't like um so um that was kind of the starting point and that was back in birmingham and like i say the sort of gods the planets aligned for me really um and i just sort of got in the right place at the right time i guess um, so that was 93 and, and generally I just, you know, and this is what I say to my son right now is, you know, he's got his first job. I'm like, get your head down, say please. And thank you. Ask lots of questions without being too annoying and just get the job done. You know, because yep. I think I feel that so many, so many people struggle to do that. It's like, get to work on time, you know, do your job, be nice 
again, say please and thank you. And, and you know, good things will normally happen to you. Um, but there's just, you know, I'm on a rant already. Look, you know, there seems to be quite a few people that don't seem to be able to do that anymore. But there you go. Um, so that was 93 office junior just sort of just started off and learned what life was all about you know this was back in the day using the old you know word perfect wherever it was on the ms dos and we were still using fax machines and and all that kind of good stuff you know i i said to somebody the other day you know we would come into work especially we were dealing internationally and you'd have three or four faxes on the fax machine and you would grab those and you would type your responses to them and you would send them back and then you know next day you'd get a reply you know yeah. whereas now of course if we haven't responded to somebody's email in 25 seconds, they're screaming at us saying, do you want the business or not? You know, it's, um, it's, it's funny that you mentioned faxes as we're recording this in uh, early July that I just had to receive a fax from the IRS. And it was like, uh, my wife has this old fax machine. So we tried to see if that would work and, and the ink was dead. And then, you know, you go through different things. And finally I was able to find an online service that I could get a free fax from to email right. it. But yep. this form, the IRS won't will either mail it, and they currently are not mailing things until the middle of July, awesome. um, or they'll fax it to you. And it yep. was kind of funny. It's like I have to go to a museum to find a fax machine. Yeah, well, I remember, you know, and, and I I just missed it by a little bit, I think. But I remember the guys that I was starting to work with then that were probably the same age that I am now, and they were telling me back in the day about all the telex stuff and you know whatever, yep. you know. So anyway, so that was office junior, just like I say, just, you know, used and abused. Um, and then slowly but surely, I think obviously must have shown some level of intelligence or, you know, intent to try and do something and, and sort of got given a little bit more responsibility, really. And like I say, then I got more involved in the, the moving light side of it, whatever. Um, and, you know, sort of just increased in, in responsibility, really. And then I sort of got the I got a sales administration job. So then I was dealing with, you know, all the paperwork on the sales side. And again, learning more about international freight, you know, and this is back in the day before, you know, the, the EU was quite as, you know, close as it is now. So we were still doing, you know, some shipping invoices and we were still doing this horrible thing called an EUR1, which, you know, this was back in using carbon paper, um, you know, and you type it wrong and you'd be like, oh my God, you know, it's like having yeah. to rewrite it all over again. Um, so I, I, sales administrator did that, learned a hell of a lot. Um, we actually then moved uh, over to the main net sort of LSD rental building, which was a whole new experience for me. And, you know, we had, you know, we were prepping stuff and, and you know, we, we were coming across, you know, I, you know, I remember there was meetings and stuff where celebrities would come in to talk about production stuff and whatever. And, you know, I was probably like, you know, 19 at the time and being completely starstruck and whatever and thinking, oh, this is really cool. Um, you know, but it was interesting. And, and then getting an opportunity then, you know, to be given, you know, passes to, to go and, and check out what we were doing at some of the local venues and, and get an opportunity to actually push some cases and pull some cable and stuff. And just sort of, you know, just sort of getting the, the foundation really um and then um sort of eventually sort of worked my way up to sort of be you know a full proper salesperson and that was sort of you know late towards late 90s 90 you know six sort of onwards um having done it for sort of three or four years at that point um and and i you know i was a salesperson you know i was trying to sell this stuff now by this point um i was truly working for what was then called total fabrications um, LSD and when I joined the company was owned by this big international conglomerate called uh, Christian Salverson God rest his soul 
um, who generally, I think the story goes that they bought LSD because they owned a Greco generators and, and wondered how they could rent generators during the summer in the UK because the only people that really rented, you know, the rental big business was construction, which mainly needed them more during the winter because of heat and light. Um, And as anyone who's who's ever spent any time in the UK will tell you, you know, our longest, our longest day in the UK, we don't get dark till 10 o'clock at night. So you really don't need, you know, a lot of light and stuff and heat on construction sites or as we call them building sites. I'm bilingual. Um, <laughs> they, uh, you know, so Greco wanted to buy something that would allow them to try and get a foot into the entertainment market, and they bought LSD, thinking that that would open the door. Well, you know, that didn't work out very well. So eventually, Christian Salveson sold it, having pumped all this money into it to develop the the, the aforementioned icon, Moving Light. Um, and 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 as part of that sell-off, um, Total Fabs, which which was part of LSD at that point, um, sort of got separated out, and there was a management buyout. Um, and I moved over into that sort of group. So I was now really just concentrating um, on trusts, roofs. And back in those days, parkams. Um, you know, we were still selling. You know, I remember, I think I'll probably go to my grave. You know, I think we used to be able to get something like 72 parkams on a pallet in a box. You know, and we would sell. We were literally selling, still selling pallets of parkams. Right. Um, you know, so... Uh, and there's probably people listening to this that have no idea what a park can is. But there you go. No, and and you, you can search. There's actually um, there's actually an article that was written in one of the early tread magazines talking about the uh, origin of the aluminum park can. And it's yep. important I make that distinction because steel park cans, you know, had been yeah, around. Back in the day, that was it, theater, you know, and you're still going to some of that. I'm sure you see them in during inspections. You go in there yeah. and there's that rolled steel park can with the rivets down the same. Yep. You know, exactly. and they weigh a bloody ton. Yep. You know? And so and, as as the industry started needing more lights, you know, 72 pars on a pallet, well, it's all about weight. So yep. Uh, yep. James James Thomas Engineering, yep. who yep. most people know for trust, actually developed the first uh, aluminum par can. And it, and yeah, we've gone in the weeds. Here we go. Yeah. They, actually, they didn't develop the first aluminum one. I will correct you. They actually developed the yeah. first aluminium one. Sorry. Oh, yeah. It's that bilingual. I, yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> um, but the reason why they were able to do it was it wasn't the, the front end of the par can. I mean, that's not that hard to figure out. But it was that the rear cap, to say, yeah. or the rear end of it. And they also produced something out of what is known as spun aluminum, which were chicken heaters. Yep. And that's exactly right. You heard me correct. Mm -hmm. They were making chicken heaters. Farmers would need things to help keep the chickens, the chicks, warm. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. But chicken shit. Yeah. And we just ruined our, our non-swearing. It's an explicit oh, episode now. Yep. Um, chicken poop is yeah. corrosive. So the spun aluminum has uh, specific characteristics where it doesn't corrode as fast and it resists that environment. So they were able to, re- to, to repurpose that technology to say to make the aluminum park in. And there you go. And if anybody's listening to this and has never actually seen, not necessarily a parkam, but just has spun aluminum, it, it's it's crazy. Go, Google it. You know, everything's that you can see a video of anything on YouTube nowadays. Go Google, you know, YouTube search spun aluminum, and you'll see it's it's cool. It's it really is. It's it's really really interesting. It generally involves a big old lathe, the mandrel, and a lot of brute force. So yep. there you go. So, so, um, so- 
So, so anyway, so we're working like for it. Total Fabs. Yeah, so I'm working at Total Fabs. This is still back in Birmingham. Um, and, you know, we can get, you know, into a history lesson. And, you know, I have to be really sort of selective about that because, you know, we all know that history is about viewpoint. And we're dealing with a lot of that right now in this country, unfortunately, or fortunately, whichever way you want to look at it. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, the opportunity came um, for me to sort of jump ship. I kind of got headhunted, um, which, you know, as a sort of early 20-year-old, um, I think I was like 22 or something like that, was, you know, it was kind of cool. Um, and, and cut a long story short, you know, I was at uh, a Plaza exhibition. And for those of you who don't know, Plaza is like the, the UK version of sort of LDI. It's like it was was for a while there the show really in all of Europe but it's still you know very important for the UK market and I was at Plaza and I got a sort of tap on the shoulder I turned around and it was this guy called Mitch Clark um, and Mitch was the the owner of, of Tomcat um, and he kind of you know in his sort of best sort of Bible Belt accent sort of asked me if I wanted to join the A-team um, <laughs> which point I sort of laughed told him that I already thought I was working for the A team, but you know, um, and, and we sort of courted each other, I guess, you know, for a little while. Um, and, and what I later found out was that Tomcat was, was trying to reopen in the UK, um, and had secured, um, a building, um, up in the Northwest of England, uh, just outside Liverpool, um, and, and needed some people to go run it for him. Um, so cut a long story short, um, 98, uh, my wife and I, uh, this was pre-kids, uh, moved from Birmingham up to Merseyside, uh, the Wirral to be to be exact, which is the anybody that's heard of the Mersey Tunnel. The Mersey Tunnel is the tunnel that links Liverpool and the Wirral. The Wirral is a peninsula. Um, it's a little bit that sticks out. Go look at Liverpool on a map and go look at the little bit that sticks out underneath. Um, that is the Wirral. Um, so that's mm-hmm. where uh, Tomcat UK Mark II, and I guess we can get into the Mark I. Well, I was, was going to say, your... I use the term a lot origin story or your story within the industry is very much tied to the history of aluminum trusts and the entertainment industry, not from its early stages, as you said, from the, the mid nineties on, but do we want to uh, take a quick pause and say, okay, so you mentioned reopening Tomcat. Um, for most of our listeners now, they know that Tomcat and Thomas are are owned by the same company, which yeah. is Area 4 Industries, which also owns several other trust manufacturers. Yeah. Um, we'll get into that. But let's pause there in the mid-90s and say, okay, where did trust start? And as you have mentioned that history is, you know, when we talk about it from, you know, a society thing history is written by the the winners Mm -hmm. um i'm not saying there are winners or losers in this but the history of trust um depending on who you talk to the story changes a little bit so we're going to kind of focus on some of the the actual you know we're going to use the term facts um the, the thing is, from my point of view, whenever I sort of tell this story, and whenever we do a training event, you know, back in the day when I was at Total and, and now, you know, more with what we call Tomcat U, you know, I spend, you know, maybe 30 minutes talking about this because I think 
I think for some, some people can give a damn and that's totally fine. You know, some people are generally interested in it. You know, some people have commented, oh, you know, somebody should write a book. And it's always like, well, yeah, that's great. But there's about 10 of us that would read it. Um, you know, most of us would probably have to contribute to it anyway. Um, but I do think it's important to kind of get it out there because, you know, I think we're all, again, I keep getting us all maudlin. Um, but, you know, we are all getting to a certain age. And I think, you know, Ethan, you and I are about the same age. The fact of the matter is, is that our peers that came before us what I kind of called generation one, um, to use an old RAF term, they're kind of falling off their perch. Um, yep. and, and I kind of call myself, technically I guess I am generation two, possibly generation 1.5 maybe, I don't know. Um, but it is gonna be a shame that some of this history does kind of get lost. Um, you know, because again, does it matter? Is it gonna change anything? No, it doesn't. But you know, I'm sure that in maybe a hundred years time, if, if our industry still exists in some form, then, you know, somebody will probably say, I wonder where that came from, you know? But um, it's, a, it's an entertaining story. Your, cool. your personality, when I've heard this from, from you numerous times, heard you tell it, and it's always entertaining. It's fun okay. to listen to. So if nothing else, I think people in our industry, well, like, we work in the entertainment I'm in the domain now. I haven't got a controlled environment, so I have to be, be nice. Yeah, yeah. Welcome to podcasting. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So um, from my point of view, obviously I have a definite spin on it because I, you know, I know some of these people better than others. Um, you know, I'm really proud to say that I've probably met just about everybody that, you know, has, has had a major part in all of this at some point. Um, some of them are, some, them are no longer with us. Some of them are uh, no longer in the industry. Some of them probably never want to be involved in the industry again. Um, you know, and I've had a part, you know, like I say, I've been around some of these people, which has been, you know, pretty amazing to, to sort of learn from them and, 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 and witness some of this history. Um, but again, I also want to stress the fact that I've obviously come from a definite point in this horrible, you know, incestuous family tree. Um, and, and, and obviously my focus and my personal sort of insight is, is on one branch of that. Right. Um, although I can sort of hint at the others, I don't necessarily know, you know, the toings and throwings. I, I've got a better idea now, having been part of Area 4, because now I've met that, some of that side of, of that family, if you like. Um, but obviously I don't, you know, know the exact ins and outs of it. Um, yep. You know, and it, and it is, it's, it is incest. And I think, you know, trust... We are a, a very specialized industry within a very specialized industry. Um, and, and, you know, don't get me wrong, the sound guys are the same, the video guys are the same, the lighting guys are the right. same. I think the difference with, um, with the trust side of it or the rigging side of it is, is that it's probably one of the smaller groups, um, you know, within, you know, it's probably the smallest bubble within the bubble kind of thing. And therefore, I think it's a lot easier for us um, to have those relationships because they're just, you know, not many of us around. There, when we've done trainings before, we've talked about specifically with trust until it is a, um, a materials change until we move away from aluminum as the dominant material for trust, the engineering doesn't change that much. You know, the, the, a, a stick of trust from one manufacturer to another fundamentally is the same. It's not the most amazing thing. It's not like a moving light where you're going to come out with some piece of new trust that just changes. Now I'm not saying it can't happen. No. And, and we've had those kind of moments, you know, I, I yeah. was, I was at Tomcat um, UK, I think when um, 
total in the US came out with with what was called the New Wave Trust, which was the Carbon Fiber Trust. And I remember yep. staring at that at an LDI exhibition being like, okay, game over. Um, and, and now having lived on the other side of that, having been responsible for that side during my time at Total, I now also understand the reasons why, you know, that didn't take off. Right. Uh, you know, and, and like you say, is there something out there that could do this a hell of a lot better than, than how we do it right now? Hell yeah. But it's kind of like, um, you know, that, that whole joke about, you know, was it crazy, stable, hot? No, crazy, yeah, intelligent, stable, hot. You can have two, but you can't have three. You know, yep. when you're picking, you know, yep. um, it's kind of the same thing with trust. You know, it's like you can have sort of, you know, good quality, strong and cheap, but you can't, you, yep. you, you can only have two of those, you know. Yep. Sort of. it, exactly. So like I say, my side of it really, you know, as far as I'm concerned, we know that the US and the UK has kind of, you know, has led the world and had led the world for a long time from an entertainment technology point of view. Yep. Right? And again, that's not putting down the guys in Europe, the guys in Asia, you know, South America, whatever. Um, but ultimately, we know that the vast majority of those big tours back in the day from the late 70s, you know, or even earlier than that onwards were mainly driven by US, you know, by Anglo-American production. It's, you know, it's supply and demand. Yeah. You know, you there know, was a market in... Look at the history of the music industry. You know, it, it, it originated in the, as we know it, it originated in the UK and then it crossed over into the US and that's why it's still dominated. You know, if I go 30 miles down the road and I go to Hollywood, there's still a lot of British accents in, in Hollywood because mm -hmm. of that. You know, and obviously, you know, for the longest time, you know, the US and, and the Brits have probably been the two, you know, closest allies, um, you know, you know in, in, in a number of things, not just commerce. So... The first, as far as, you know, and again, I want to stress to everybody listening that, you know, I'm sure that you're going to have elements to this timeline that you can interject with and you're going to be sitting here screaming right now at whatever device, you know, you're listening to us on going, that's not right. Or no, that wasn't true. Or hang on a minute. This was the first, and I get that, you know, and I would say, feel free to email Ethan with all of those comments. <laughs> Um, but, um, you know, I'm only seeing it from my point of view and the data that I've got is either because I was there because I've met and sat with somebody and taken down notes, which may or may not be wrong because again, it was that viewpoint of that particular person. And then very often is two sides of this story or what I've already found sort of in the public domain to kind of fill the gaps in, in my own knowledge, whether that be, you know, LinkedIn profiles, whether that be, um, you know, comments in, 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 in other publications or, you know, things like that. So as far as we know, the sort of, you know, obviously we know that people were using trust. The first real trust, as we, you know, we sort of say, obviously, is a theater map. You know, that is a trust. It's a Verindale trust. Um, that is the first attempt to try and make something carry a load over a distance. That's, you know, in our world. Um, but the first trusts that we would really sort of recognize in our world um, would, would be during the 1970s. Um, and, and there's a gentleman... Um, who, if you don't know his name, you probably should. And, and I would recommend everybody go and Google his name. Um, it's a gentleman called Richard Hartman. Um, Richard um, really sort of was one of the sort of founding sort of fathers of, of, of the modern entertainment technology industry, especially the touring industry. Um, I got to work with Richard um, through Tomcat uh, back, um, personally worked with him um, on the Millennium Dome project, which was... Um, a sort of ill-fated project that was done, um, you know, obviously 1999 onwards. Um, and some of you guys may remember that political hot potato that was kicking around at the time. It was, you know, the UK's attempt to try and recognise the new millennium and whatever. Um, but there was a huge project for us and I got to work Richard on that. And Richard, you know, very, very, um, 
a really cool guy, has some really, really interesting stories. Um, but Richard, um, through a, a, his company at the time, Richard Hartman Associates, really sort of created what we, you know, really class as the first recognizable stage trust. Um, and then that eventually became what some of us may now know as TTR, um, Theatre Technical Research. Um, and that was both in the US and the UK. And, and anyone that's sort of gone through an old rental company um, and sort of had to, you know, go through their inventory and whatnot may well have stumbled across the, the TTR trust, um, like I say, which was the first sort of one that we'd really kind of recognize uh, as, a, as a trust, you know, that wasn't, you know, an antenna trust or something crazy like that. Um, uh, believe it or not, um, the the other sort of major player was, was in the UK at that time was, was a company called Slick Systems. Um, and we know that there is a little bit of Slick Trust still kicking around uh, the US. I know that Disney... Um, down in Florida, still have some bits and pieces and some old roof systems kicking around. Um, that that was started by a gentleman called Bob, called Mike Wood, um, and and Slick started to manufacture sort of trusts in the, the late seventies and, and early eighties um, in Staffordshire, which is just outside Birmingham. Um, by American terms, it's miles away by British terms, but it's you know down the street by American distance. Um, so um, Slick was sort of kicking around at that point. Um, James Thomas, uh, you know, as you said before, they kind of really were the first one to sort of really, you know, the, 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 the RHA, the Richard Hartman stuff that was kind of mean serving and, you know, means to serve an end. As far as I was concerned, James Thomas was the first one that really sort of, um, you know, marketed it, shall we say in a more modern kind of form. James Thomas was, was formed in 1977 in, in Worcestershire, um, not, you know, again, relatively just outside the UK, you know, Staffordshire, Worcestershire, they're all within, you know, sort of 45 minute drive of, of the UK, of, of Birmingham. Um, so uh, Graham Thomas and John Walters, uh, they started James Thomas. Um, the James Thomas engineering comes from Graham James Thomas. Um, there is no sort of real James Thomas, but that was, was Graham. Um, both gen both of those gentlemen have sadly passed away. Graham actually uh, passed away uh, a couple of months ago. Um, so that was 1977. Um, uh, 1978, sort of late 70s, um, we start to see uh, theatrical trust products um, being developed, um, mainly with, with light and sound design, um, and another company called Meteorlights, uh, which was a major player at the time. Um, some of the stuff starts to happen. Uh, a gentleman called Adrian Brooks, um, who's still um, involved um, in the industry. Um, he started a company called Astroloy uh, in, in Northern UK, in Yorkshire. Uh, they start making that early 80s. Uh, 83 was a big one. 83, James Thomas Engineering builds the first pre-rig truss. Um, and again, sadly, there's probably people, Ethan, listening to this that probably don't even know what we really mean by pre-rig trust. Um, it is the, the precursor to what we now see as either Tyler GT trust or any variation of swing wing trust where uh, you don't have to hang the trust and then hang your lighting or audio or video on it. It is pre-rigged. So the original, I say, to my knowledge, the original design was... You would have a 10-foot bar, and they weren't round. They were a, uh, well, at least the Pete's bars were the extruded aluminum kind of rectangular with little 
flanges on them. And that bar would sit in your truss and you would fly your truss and then you would lower the bars down to the bottom of the truss so that the bars hung out the bottom of the truss. Not all the time. Some people would just leave them up. Yeah. And, but that exponentially speeded up things because you were no, A, it saved truck space because now your fixtures are in the truss already and it saved time because you're not hanging all of them and you're not cabling individual fixtures. So well, that's, that's you now that we, everything from, you know, I remember some of my first jobs in industry was wiring up bars of six, you know, and everybody said, yeah. okay, well, you know, the, the pre-rig truss was 93 inches, the bars were 90 inches um, and it had six par cans on it. And why six? Well, 19 pin soccer pecs, six circuits of three conductors equals 18. That'll do. We'll yep. use that. Now all of a sudden you can run one cable to one lamp bar um, and you can control six circuits individually as opposed to having to run, you know, an individual cable to it. Um, you know, there's, again, there's probably list, people listening to this that have probably only ever used LED that the thought of actually running a multi-core that's an inch thick to one bar of six probably just blows their mind. But obviously, you know, we were dealing with tungsten and, and that's what you needed, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, that's why your cable pick was, 24 inches in diameter you know and weighed a ton you know but anyway um so yeah first pre-rig truss 83 um you know that kind of revolutionized the industry really um because all of a sudden now you know you could speed everything up you know you could you could leave your cans in the truss you weren't having to rig everything separately you know you would fly the truss you'd pop the cans out the bottom bottom and now all of a sudden instead of it being you know a, a 12 hour in or something you're getting it down to, to four or five hours or something and that you know again really changed the industry because now all of a sudden you could back to back and you know there was stuff going on um so um tomcat uk uh is formed in 85 as an offshoot really of, of james thomas engineering you know usual story we know all these stories you know every one of us has probably worked for a company that's either you know had somebody leave and start their own company or has been an offshoot of aforementioned company or something like that and, and, and that was the case with tomcat um tomcat started in the uk um again just happened to be in worcestershire uk very close to james thomas engineering what a surprise um and then 87 um is when when tomcat usa started um, and, and the reason why it's always sort of been referred to tomcat usa is because tomcat uk really came first and that was the differentiator and for a while there as i'll get into that in a minute there wasn't a tomcat uk um so 87 is tomcat usa um 89 um is when um total fabs um starts surprisingly enough in worcestershire uk um and uh, all sorts of legal stuff went on and whatever. And actually for a short while, um, James Thomas was actually manufacturing product under the Tomcat name in the UK, um, which I'm not going to get into the legalese and all of that, but you know, that was very, so you've got sort of like this five year period where literally all hell broke loose, um, you know, and all these moving and shaking and everything happened. Um, so at this point you've got Tomcat USA, um, in, in, in Texas, um, as being the first real sort of major manufacturer doing it sort of properly in the US. Um, and obviously the other manufacturers at that point had to be seen to react. And, um, and, the, and the reason why Tomcat US opened up was uh, the expense of manufacturing trust, which we all know does not ship very you know cheaply because it eats up all the space. It was very expensive to ship trusts overseas. The demand was huge. Yep. So uh, companies well from, here. 
companies were spending more money on shipping the trust than on the trust itself because, of course, we plan extremely far ahead in the entertainment industry. Yeah, at least a week, right? Uh, yes, <laughs> a, a week. So they were paying for stuff to be air freighted over so they could get it in timeline in huge volumes, and it was just a huge expense. So uh, smart business dictates, hey, if we can manufacture locally, we can get more money to us instead of to the shipping company. Yep. So uh, Tomcat USA started um, in Midland, Texas, um, which, you know, is in the Permian Basin, West Texas. Um, uh, you know, relatively good location to sort of, you know, you can go west or east or north from there kind of thing, good distribution point. Um, a lot of skilled engineering guys there because of the, the oil fields and the oil industry. Yep. So um, that, that, like I say, that, that was, uh, that was 87 and 89 total fabrication comes along 90 James Thomas USA started um, in, uh, in Knoxville, Tennessee. And the reason why it's in Knoxville was that originally there was a big assist um, from the guys at Bandit Lights, um, who is one of James Thomas's biggest U.S. customers, and, and they, as you, everybody should know, they're based in Knoxville. So it made sense uh, for them to put them in Knoxville, and that's kind of created this sort of secondary world base of operations, I guess. You know, if you sort of consider that, you know, Birmingham was kind of, you know, Birmingham and the surrounding area, the the, the industrial heartland was kind of like, you know, ground zero from, from that side of the family tree. Yep. Um, you know, Knoxville has sort of become ground zero as far as the other side of it was concerned. Um, so Total Fabs follows along very shortly, 91. Uh, that's actually formed Total Fabs USA, started in Dallas, Texas. Um, 91, um, we also get another name that came into play, which was Light Structures. Light Structures is formed out of, of Adrian Brooks and, and Astraloy. Um, they start, they're still up in the, the, the northern UK. A lot of Adrian and, and, and light structures and Astraloy sort of um, target market was the sort of growing disco market and, and whatever. Anybody that sort of went to a, a disco in the, the 1980s will probably remember looking above their head and, and seeing, you know, all those crazy truss rigs and whatever and a lot of movement and stuff like that, which now scares the crap out of me. Um, but, uh, but that, you know, that was a, a massive growth area as well. You know, anybody that went to um, the Rimini trade show um, back in the, you know, the 90s will remember, you know, especially with all the, the, the crazy Italian guys, you know, with all the, the disco, it was, a, it was a huge portion of our industry. You know, it really yep. was up there with the touring side of it. Um, so 91, uh, 91's also the year that ProLite was formed uh, up uh, in the Northern Netherlands, uh, close to Groningen. Uh, town called leak um that's that was pro light and again that's kind of that other side of the family tree now that is starting to sort of be created um 92 uh is when and, and bear in mind that you know i came along in sort of 93 so 92 is when total fabs uk and usa was acquired by light and sound design um and then by christian salverson as i mentioned before um total fabs usa is moved uh from dallas uh to uh this place called newbury park california uh or thousand oaks california uh which just happens to be where i'm talking to you from now um which um was where light and sound already had a u.s operation um you know those of you that don't know you southern california sort of you know geography um we're about you know 30 35 minutes to hollywood 45 to 20 minutes to an hour to downtown and the airport from here 
So obviously it probably made sense for LSD. You know, you're in, you're in the burbs a little bit, but you're not, you know, dealing with LA sales tax and LA traffic and that kind of stuff. We're kind of nicely yeah. out. And obviously it's easier to, you know, probably attract employees, you know, with a suburban area and all that kind of stuff. So that's where LSD were and, and Total Fabs moved everything. They were told by the new owners, hey, you know, we don't need two buildings in America. You can pack this one up in Dallas and you can go find yourself a corner in, in that building in, 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 in California. Um, so Total Fabs then became, you know, a California entity. Uh, 93, uh, the next sort of name uh, in, in that, the European family tree, which is Eurotrust. Um, Eurotrust is, 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 is formed, you know, very, very close to, to ProLite. Go figure. Now we've got our second base of, you know, Grand Zero. Right. From, you know, the, the European guys are concerned. Um, 94, uh, Melos is formed in the Czech uh, Republic. Um, and, and then we'll get more into to those guys in a minute. Um, 95 is, is when that buyout happened that I told you about before with Total Fabs UK and Total Fabs USA. Um, and, and, you know, I was around for all of that on the Total Fabs side. Um, 96 uh, is when Tomcat UK starts to come back around again. Um, Tomcat UK had been closed. Um, with all sorts of stuff that went on and, and, and 96 to 98 is when it all started to come back around again and, and eventually Mitch Clark ends up getting ownership of the, the Tomcat UK name and, and, and starts that new operation up in Merseyside that I was talking about and that's kind of when I jumped ship to go from from total fabs as it was to, 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 to Tomcat. Um, and then sort of moving forward, the timeline, as far as the industry was concerned, was uh, 98, there was management buyout. Like I say, there was the management buyout. That's when Total Fabs became a separate entity, um, uh, both in the US and the UK. 99, Tomcat opened an operation in Mexico. Um, 99, I believe, is also when the guys down at Extreme opened. And, and Mike can correct me on that, but I think that's kind of when Extreme um, opened down in Texas. Um, that slick name that I mentioned uh, was uh, eventually was absorbed into Total Fabs in the UK in 2003. Um, 2004, Tyler opened, um, surprisingly in Tyler, Texas, um, who are no longer in Tyler, Texas. Um, and then 2005, Total Fabs is renamed to what they call the Total Solutions Group. Um, Total Structures has been renamed before that. Total Fabs USA became Total Structures and, and all sorts of stuff. Um, the sort of big ones after that really was that 2006, um, Tomcat USA, Tomcat UK, Tomcat Mexico, um, uh, Brilliant Stages was also part of Tomcat by that point. That's a whole other conversation. Yep. Um, they they were acquired by a company called Vitec, um, not to be confused with Litec, but Vitec. Um, and you know, Vitec is 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 still a, a you know an ongoing concern. You can Google them. They're they're on the stock exchange. Um, but you know, they're, a, they're the main, their main claim to fame, as far as we were concerned, was they were the guys that owned Manfrotto, um, you know, and they owned some other brands as well that some of us would recognise, more film and TV type stuff, um, professional photography, things like that. But right. you know, they bought, they bought the company from Mitch. Um, that was two thousand six. Um, a lot of moving and shaking around those times. You know, there was a lot of stuff going on. You know, in the economy and whatnot. Um, 2006, I think ProLite was also partly acquired by venture capitalists as well, you know, so there's just a lot of, you know, the, a lot of maturity, yeah, you know, and, the market was maturing, shall we say. And I think that's something that uh, a lot of people 
who are new to the industry have to understand is that a lot of times the the spin-offs or the expansion of companies isn't necessarily because of uh, interpersonal relationships between people involved, but sometimes they're driven by business market. decisions. Yep. Market. So for instance, tax laws drive a lot of things that if a, a company is an international company, they're taxed differently instead of if, if they are just a U.S. company. So you make decisions based on how do we maintain the business, what's good for revenue, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Not saying that sometimes there aren't, you know, somebody says, you know what? I've been at this company. I think I want to do my own thing and, and have an attempt at that. So this mass expansion is a combination of all of these factors of things. And well, then you get into that 90s, 2000 venture capitalist. Yep. Internet boom. Exactly. Yeah. Where companies are looking for ways. And, and I mean, you can talk about the, the aspect of if this is good or bad, but they're looking for ways to make quick money. They have a ton of cash. They go, what can we invest in? Well, this company's growing. Well, let's invest in that. And then a year later, they go, we made as much as we think we're going to make. We're going to sell it. Well, um, we've already seen, you know, our industry on the whole tends to not, it's changing. You know, I think we've seen obviously a lot more outside, outside, that sounds really bad, but outside forces um, come into our industry and be successful over the last couple of years. But prior to that, you know, there were not many success stories, you know, that were very light, you know, had issues and, and, you know, Phillips obviously got involved and, and things like that, whatever. And there have been success stories now. And, and a lot of the bigger players now, you know, like four wall and PSAV ultimately have much bigger organizations behind them. Right. But historically, We've been an industry of mom and pops, really. I was about to say the exact same you know? thing. Yep. You know, like I remember when I joined LSD, we were probably arguably the biggest production company in the world, and we probably had maybe 200 people on payroll. You know, that's a chicken shit company in the, in the big scheme of things. You know, I'm going to, you know, I'll probably finish the conversation in a minute about my history. You know, and at one point I worked for Columbus McKinnon. You know, and we were a, at that point a $600 million a year company. Right. For our industry is just, unfathomable yep. but for the real world that's still a medium-sized company that's not a big company going you know? with the going with the joke that most statistics are made up on the spot one of the things to put in perspective entertainment hoists chain hoists for columbus mckinnon are uh I think it's less than 5% yeah. of, oh, their, yeah. of their hoist business. Now, yeah. CM has a whole lot of other stuff. They have their industrial side. We're talking serially manufactured electric chain hoists. We're a fairly small blip, and they are, you know, that is the workhorse of rigging is chain yeah. hoist. Chain hoist and truss. Can't, well, can't do a show uh, without them. And unfortunately, the, this is kind of the problem that we're challenged that we're dealing with as an industry right now with everything, you know, those of you that hopefully will be listening to this in a long time, we're actually in the middle of a pandemic. Um, and uh, our industry, unfortunately, or fortunately, whichever way you want to look at it, and it probably depends on which side, whether you're claiming unemployment right now or not, um, our industry is going to be changed massively as a result of this pandemic. Um, you know, uh, there's a... A friend of mine um, who's, you know, a, 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 probably arguably a generation one um, in his world, um, a guy called Matt Carlson, who, who runs um, his own production uh, power distribution um, company, um, 
manufacturing company um, in Scandinavia and Matt's posted something on the other day on Facebook on one of the groups saying, you know, how do people feel this is going to affect R&D? Um, well, you know, I know for a minute, I know for a second right now, we ain't spending any money on R&D right now because at the moment, 99% of us, I think, even from a personal point of view, are in survival mode. Um, right. Now, I think going back to the whole thing about these buyouts and mergers and, and, and whatever, this pandemic is going to, to do that because unfortunately anything like this, any kind of major, you know, our industry on the whole is relatively resilient. You know, the last time that we had anything anywhere near this was 9-11. Um, and, you know, I think those of us that were in the industry in 9-11 will never kind of forget it, just like none of us will probably forget, you know, the last six months. Um, and, uh, you know, the whole industry kind of just ground to a halt. Um, and, and, in, and in hindsight, it was probably nowhere near as bad as this is or is going to be, unfortunately. Um, but it was one of those moments. And, and when you look at what happened, a lot of those mergers and acquisitions and stuff that happened were, were a reflection of, of industry change during, uh, during and after not the 9-11 fallout because it was, it's a stress test. Right. Um, and that's what we're dealing with right now. Unfortunately, there is probably going to be a trust company or two that maybe doesn't make it through this whole deal. Um, yep. and, and, you know, rightly, wrongly, and you can argue about that till the cows come home. It depends on which side of the fence you sit and if it's your money or not, or you're employee of that company or not, but there's probably going to be some fallout. And that goes for the lighting guys, the video guys, you know, the, the audio guys, there's going to be fallout from it. And, and that creates market change. Um, and, and, you know, ultimately the market is only so big right now um, and again, everybody talks about, you know, oh, the industry, we're going to flick a switch and whatever. We ain't flicking a switch because every single one of us right now knows a really, really good person that we've worked with in the past that right now is no longer in our industry because they're doing what they've got to do to pay a mortgage. And, and, and our industry is going to suffer as a result of that. You know? and, a, and a big thing that we touched on earlier is a lot of it's based on perception. Um, we can all talk about how we want to go back to the movie theater. We want to go back to the theater. We want to go back to concerts, but a lot of this is going to be driven by public perception of their safety. And it should be, you know, it's also, it's also about need. You know, I think every single one of us has seen a meme um, posted by one of our friends or colleagues in the last couple of weeks that probably shows that picture of everybody's crammed into the, you know, the fuselage of a 737 wearing masks sitting on top of each other and then the picture of a theatre and says, why is this any different? Well, the, unfortunately for us, the difference is is that air travel is perceived as essential and theatre is not. Right. Um, and, and unfortunately, you know, this has been done to death already. We were the first industry to shut down and we are going to be the last one to go yep. back. Um, and, and whether we like it or not, unfortunately, that is, that is the truth. And that is, and we just have to be prepared for that. And, and the, the fallout again, as to what that's going to mean for our industry is, is that there's probably going to be some mergers and acquisitions probably in the next 24 months or so because of what's happened here. Um, with either people jumping ship or companies looking for a lifeline or, and, and I'll get into the area four thing in a minute, but that's kind of where area four came out of really was that you've got this developing maturing market that can no longer sustain, you know, go look at, go look at the history of the U S automotive market and go and look at how many U S automotive manufacturers there were probably a hundred years ago. Right. 
Right. There's probably tens, if not hundreds, you know, I know there was in the UK. And guess what? Over time, all of those companies got either disappeared or got absorbed. And we've, we've even seen that in the US in the last 10 years. You know, you look at all the brands that GM carried, you look at all the brands that Ford carried. And at some point, somebody somewhere, whether it's a marketing guy or a, or a financial guy, turns around and says, this doesn't work anymore, guys. You know? Yeah. And, and um, we've seen it in other areas of the industry. High End was acquired by ETC. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not always, sometimes it's, hey, it's the right time if you are the owner of a company and you've spent 30 years building it and you're looking to retire, what do you do with the company? Well, and that's also the other thing that we're dealing with right now. We're talking about an industry that in effect started late 70s, early 80s. We're in 2020. Therefore, yep. we are at that point now where if you started a company in 1980, and you were 20, you're now 60. So you're kind yeah. of like, you know what? It's, it's time it's, to cash out, guys. You know, and that's change yeah. and, and, and what do you do? So but the downside to this is, is that our industry as a whole is not, we are not American Airlines. We're not Delta Airlines that can go stand at the door of the White House and kick it down and go, oi, we need some help. You know, and, and you know, there's, there's other conversations. There's a whole other conversation about yeah. all of that, and, and which hopefully will no longer be relevant when somebody's listening to this in two years' time. Um, but it's going to be interesting to see what happens in these little mini bubbles within the bubble in these industries to see what's going to shake loose because, unfortunately, there isn't enough money to go around right now. Right. Um, and, you know, things like R&D budgets and stuff like that have to go out the window when all we're talking about is trying to make payroll this week. And and again, it comes to supply and demand. Right now, there's no demand, so there's going to be no supply. That's right. So, it's sort of from that point onwards, we're sort of like you know, like I say, we're 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 sort of late. You know, we're 2010. um, ProLite acquires Light Structures. Um, Mike Gar leaves James Thomas Engineering and joins Tomcat USA. You know, there's more and more of this incest and this merger that goes on. from my point of view, the big one was was that um, in 2013, um, Milos, uh, the Czech company, buys Tomcat USA um, and another company called Litech, which is an Italian company that's part of our group. Um, um, and, and, and that's where the sort of start of Area 4 Industries really sort of came from. Um, Tomcat USA was relocated um, from Texas to Tennessee. Um, 2014 Eurotrust opens in Tennessee, <laughs> you know, yep. um, and then the next real big one then was 2014 where James Thomas um, became part of area four, what we now call area four. Um, so to sort of go off at a tangent, the area four thing really started off as, as Milos. Um, like I say, they bought Tomcat USA and, and Litech um, in 2013. Um, in 2014, James Thomas came into the mix um, and, and that was sort of the core group of, of companies for quite a while. Um, so Milos is um, headquartered in the Czech Republic. Um, we've also got a manufacturing facility uh, in China, um, which I want to stress is actually our manufacturing facility. It's not like an OEM style deal or whatever. You know, it actually says Milos Area 4 Industries above the door, which I think, you know, makes us one of the few companies that really does that. Um, so Czech Republic and China, um, and then we've got Litech, which is just outside Venice, Italy. And obviously we've now got, you know, Tomcat outside Knoxville. Um, and then, um, James Thomas was sort of pulled into the same, we, we merged James Thomas. They were already in Knoxville. We merged them in with Tomcat to create this sort of, you know, super company, if you like in Knoxville, which is, you know, eventually sort of become James Thomas. 
slash Tomcat, um, which again, you know, who would have thought that even 10 or 15 years ago? You know, it's, it's like the Red Sox and the Yankees merging, you know? Uh, we're done. <laughs> yeah, out. I'm sorry. But, you know, for that to a Bostonian, you know. It's like, oh, but that's what he was, you know, and you know that. You remember that. Alps yeah. was, a, was a James Thomas house, right? Back yeah, yeah. Alps was a James Thomas. And, and it's kind of like CM. There are other hoist manufacturers out there. It's, yep. I'm not saying anything about the quality of the product, but companies had a certain percentage of market share. James yep. Thomas and Tomcat in the U.S. for a long time had a majority of the market share. That's not saying that there wasn't a lot of applied electronics trusts out there. They made product. We had triangle trusts. I mean, most people have triangle trusts. It's applied electronics. Yep. Um, but it, it's it's where you know a company bought a bunch of inventory from a manufacturer because they had been with them for a long time. They grew, they got acquired. It, it just all those factors go into it. But then you have this, um, you know, the owners of James Thomas are at that age. They're looking to yep. get out. What do we do with the company? Uh, Milos uh, has. The, the resources and says that's yeah. a good business move and they acquire yeah. the company. Um, and, you know, and you see the same thing, you know, we, the Czech, Czech Republic is, is, is really an interesting place. You know, anybody that's never been there, you know, it, it's really, really worth a visit. You know, obviously from an American viewpoint, you know, we always think of Czech as sort of being ex-Soviet Union, which it was, you know, it really was kind of one of the engineering. You look at you know, anybody that's a firearms guy will know CZ. CZ was manufacturing, you know, was manufacturing firearms for, for Russia. Yep. Um, you know, and that's the thing it was, and there's also a lot of really cool engineering that goes down there, a lot of aerospace business. And well, stuff we, like we that, joke you know? about German engineering being so precise and, and really good. Well, it's really the, the Eastern European engineering. I yeah, mean, it's, it's, yeah. it, and, and from the States, we tend to forget the geographic size of yep. Europe versus United States. Yep. Hey, and, if, if, if I'm in California, then I'm on, let's say I'm in Portugal and Florida, Florida is the Czech Republic. Maybe not even that. It could probably, Florida is probably Louisiana. Uh, sorry. Czech Republic is probably Louisiana, you know? Right. So from a distance point of view, there's a, you know, it, it's, it, there's and, a lot of, a lot of nationalities, a lot of religions, a lot of cultures all crammed into, right. we think we're a melting pot, Yeesh, you know? Yeah. So, um, so you have, you have the, this, this solid industry that's growing because they are a, a young country to say and a yep. young business structure. And, just, and became part of the European Union, you know, yep. without taking the Euro. And we can argue about that to the cows command as well, but that gave them, you know, the closest thing that I say when I describe area four industries to somebody, um, I'm a car guy, you know, I, I like cars and, and the closest that area four, um, comes, I always explain it is it's kind of like the Volkswagen group. You know, you've got this Volkswagen group, which ultimately is this sort of holding company, but underneath it, you've got all these individual brands. Um, and they, those brands are either cultural geography, emotional, whatever. So, you know, you've got Porsche, you know, you've got, uh, Lamborghini, you know, you've got those brands that are this high end thing, whatever, you know, that, that are very, you know, the, there's a Porsche owner that is only ever going to buy a Porsche because he's a Porsche kind of guy. Right. Well, right. You know, maybe that could be Tomcat, you know? Um, and then as you filter down, you've got VW, you've got Audi, you've got Skoda, you've got Seat. Well, we've never seen a Seat in America. It doesn't make any sense. We'll just sell it as a Volkswagen because Volkswagen has the name, but 
we also know that 90% of that Volkswagen and 90% of that Seat are probably the same vehicle. Right. Um, it's it's you know, brand brand loyalty. Yeah. It's, I'm not going to bring a Litec trust. Litec is very strong, a very, very strong brand for us, especially in the Mediterranean European countries. Well, you know, I don't necessarily need to bring the Litec unless Litec has something very unique. Why do I want to need to bring that to the USA just to dilute the other brands that I already have? Right. Now, all of a sudden, Litec stumble across this trust that's made out of unobtainium and can be, do all these amazing things. Then, hell, we're going to push the Litec brand right. because it makes sense. Or maybe we rebrand it as a Tomcat or a James Thomas product because that's where the perception will be better received. You know, yep. the, 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 the thing for us is, again, it goes back to this mergers and acquisition thing. What we realized as a group of business people was, was that you can't have all of these individual brands all doing separate R&D, all doing separate IT, all doing separate human resources, whatever. They're just, unfortunately, if this industry is going to develop and grow, they just can't survive. And the only way that, that we can move forward is, is to potentially do, you know, some, some amalgamation, if you like, some mergers and things like that. Now, that doesn't mean that you end up with one company. You create a vacuum, it has to be filled. We know that. You know, all that we're trying to do is take like-minded companies, create this sort of core DNA from a spine point of view, whereby we can share resources. And then the, the trick is to allow a certain amount of autonomy at the local level where that real brand DNA still has to remain in order to make feel, people feel comfortable and ultimately understand what that market needs. You know, the, the, the conical trust market you know, you go, what we're used to seeing is a piece of 12 inch nut and bolt connection. It's the workhorse of our industry. You know, there are millions of sticks of it in this country. Um, you know, go to any four wall, you know, warehouse, go to any PSAV warehouse, whatever you are going to see miles and miles of 12 inch nut and bolt. Yep. Well, you know, that stuff in Europe has been replaced mainly by 12 inch conical, whether it be ProLite, whether it be Milos, whether it be Eurotrust, whatever your poison is right now. Um, the fact of the matter is, is that part of the reason why that's been successful over there, one is because that was the style of product that was originated in that area. So therefore it's perceived a little bit better than we would probably do here because we were all brought up on 12 inch nut and bolt. Yep. That's what we understand. They were brought up mainly on 290 millimeter conical. Well, you know, so there's that perception, but it's also a different market. You know, we will put stuff on a truck in Florida and drive it to California and then drive it to New York and then drive it back to Florida again. You don't really do that as much in Europe. You tend to recreate the production in Europe more locally. You'll move around the pieces that you can't find locally, yep. the set pieces or the gags or whatever it may be. But that core basic, you know, piece of front of house trust or whatever it's going to be, you just rent that wherever you, whichever city you're going to be in or whichever country you're going to be in. Therefore, the need for that piece of trust to be absolutely bomb proof as i would call it is not quite as important now what's more important is the fact that it's lightweight and the fact that it's it's cheaper because we don't right. need it to do the same things and again it's just it's a different animal um yep. so i'm dealing with that on a daily basis because i'm responsible for all of these brands within the area four thing and obviously the core of our business in the united states is still tomcat and james thomas but we also see applications where if a little church phones me up and says, Hey, I've got a thousand dollars budget. We need to put, you know, 20 feet of trust over, you know, our stage for a thousand dollars. I can give them a lot more product on the Milos or the ProLite side than I can do on the Tomcat, the James Thomas side. 
And again, if this is a piece of trust that's going to get flown and it's just going to gather dust for the next 10 years, right? there comes a point where we have to be selective about it. And it's again, you know, you can walk into the Porsche dealer and they'll probably gladly sell you a Porsche that'll sit in your garage and you'll drive 1,000 miles a year because you're a rich old dude. But if you want a car that, you know, is going to, you're going to drive to work 50 miles each way or whatever, Porsche is probably not the way to go because it's going to cost you a fortune to service it. Buy yourself the VW in that case. It's, it's, you know? it's, it's the standard thing of, it's a tool you you use the correct tool for the application that doesn't mean you know yes i can drive a nail with an eight pound sledgehammer it doesn't mm-hmm. mean you know it's the smartest choice yep. where a small little framing hammer will work you know we sell a lot of that conical trust now into you know applications like virtual reality um into you know sort of the ninja gym stuff and whatever that we're seeing yep. everywhere you know that kind of stuff and again it, it, it you know it, it pains me on one side because I'm a nut and bolt kind of guy, but I also understand that if I, we, if we don't adapt and we don't, you know, mold, the chances are that somebody will come along and do it for us. Um, yep. And therefore, you know, what we're doing as a, as a company is trying to sort of get our sales team to be more blended so that again, when, and, and, it, and don't get me wrong, it works both ways. We'll very often get an inquiry on the area four side and it's very obvious from day one, you know what? We don't have a product for that. This needs to go to Tomcat because Tomcat may be able to do a custom solution for it. We can do it engineered for what they need or whatever. And, and ultimately at that point, it's just a question of trying to work out, making sure that they've got a realistic budget and timeline and that, you know, they're ready for that sticker shock or whatever's going to come with it. And, and, you know, sometimes they don't, sometimes they do. Um, but again, to us as a company, it just allows us to have all those different sort of, you know, weapons, if you like, in, in, in the, the closet that we can pull out depending on what, what we need rather than just being, no, 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 it's going to be a piece of 12 inch nut and bolt, whether you like it or not, you know? Right. Um, so, so I want to, uh, to take us back to, um, your own involvement in the industry, right. which is you so, had you had mentioned that you you did a stint with CM in Europe as a, a salesperson there. So I, I got the I got the tap on the shoulder from Mitch Clark. I go work for Tomcat UK. I, I do that for five years, and by the time that by the time that two thousand three comes along, um, you know we went through the Millennium Dome. We did the Millennium Dome project, which was absolutely huge. We you know we built that as Tomcat. You know in in all of our facilities around the world. We built products in UK. We built products in Texas. We built products in Mexico. We even built product down at Brilliant Stages because we owned those guys at that point. We were building it anywhere we could because there's just so much stuff going on. Um, and and you know everyone remembers you know that was around. That was just a really busy period of time. Full stop because there was a lot of crap happening around the millennium. You know, and there was like money going. Right. Well, you know, then of course. 9-11 happens and it kind of, you know, kind of similar to what's happening now is that we've had a, a, so many years of, of consecutive growth and then all of a sudden it gets pulled out from underneath you, you know? So 2003 comes um, and uh, I was um, selling CMs. I'd known CM for, you know, my side on the motors was that back in the day, in, you know, total in the UK, I, I was selling Valind. Um, you know, I spent, a couple of days, you know, working the production line in, in Vernaway, France, which is a facility that's no longer there, um, that where we used to make, you know, what, what was the original lighter chain. Um, anybody remembers those, um, you know, normally they were still painted yellow because they were industrial units that just happened to work upside down. Um, and then we, then they actually realized that there was an industry and we, we got what was called the first stage makers. 
Um, and then when I moved over to Tomcat, I kind of got exposed to the CM side of it and got to know those guys really well because we were probably, arguably, probably CM's biggest entertainment customer globally at that point between the US and, and the UK. Um, so, you know, we got to know those guys really, really well. Um, and then another one of those taps on the shoulder moments. Um, and it was um, Wally Blount um, at CM. Um, who was sort of the, the product manager and the sort of brand manager, if you like, as far as the entertainment business was concerned, asking if um, I wanted to try and help them um, sort of take on the European market, really. And this is when, you know, we first started seeing mumblings from the guys over at Liftcat with what would become Chainmaster and, and what has become, you know, the show distribution units over here and stuff like that. Liftcat was starting to get involved in it. Um, we... We had actually, Tomcat had kind of created their own enemy, really. We actually sold the first lift kits um, into the UK um, for the Millennium Dome. Um, we, 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 we had an opportunity. We, there was a, an absolute metric shitload of, of motors that were needed for that. And, and, and we, you know, we just couldn't make it work with the budget with CM. So we ended up putting lift kits in there and kind of created a monster, really. Um, but anyway, so I got to know the CM guys, Wally Blank tapped me on the shoulder and said, Hey, we need to do this properly in Europe. Now everything was being managed from, from the States. Um, we need some support. So, um, back in 2003, um, I, uh, went to work for those guys, left Tomcat. Um, as you imagine that, you know, it wasn't a particularly sort of pleasant experience because for for any of us, because, you know, like I say, Tomcat was probably CM's biggest entertainment customer and, and they kind of took their general manager. So that went down really well. Um, so 2003, I joined CM. Um, I was European sales manager, but I wasn't just responsible for the, for the entertainment product. I also had responsibility for some of the CM industrial products, um, which again was quite interesting. And it sort of really sort of exposed me to my sort of first wave of, of, of sort of business politics, I would say. Um, CM... Um, you know, it owns a number of other brands, um, one of which being the Yale company. And, it, and, it, and back in the day, you know, most of us outside of our industry, outside the lifting industry knows Yale for probably two reasons. One is, is Yale locks. Um, and the second one is Yale forklifts so, and, and, and sort of, you know, material handling equipment. Um, right. Originally, at some point, they were all the same company. But over the years, again, that all been split off. So we had Yale, um, you know, lifting which was part of CM, which has nothing to do with the Yale locks or Yale forklifts or whatever. So we had all these European companies and, and my job was to try and play nicely with these guys and try and reintroduce a bunch of the CM products, the industrial products into this in industrial world. So, you know, it was, it was a bit of a culture shock for me. One, because I'd gone from, you know, a company where I was literally, you know, talking to the owner of the company every single day of my work in life to a company that employed a couple of thousand people. Like I said before, at that point, it was probably, you know, half a billion dollars a year, you know, manufacturing and warehousing facilities all over the world, you know. Um, and, you know, it, it, was, it was a culture shock. You know, I was used to being able to look at a product and going, hey, we should change this. And we go, oh, okay, that's cool. Let's change the design. We changed the drawing and now we've changed the design. That would take me two years at CM because that's what it takes, you know. So that was a big culture shock for me. The industrial side was a big eye opener. Um, and, and I think it made me a better salesperson. I think it made me a better business person because, you know, I was, I was literally doing a call in the morning 
you know, in, in jeans and a polo shirt for the entertainment guys and, and, and getting my hands dirty and, and, and climbing through a roof or doing what I need to do. And then I would have to go to the car, grab my suit bag, go to the restroom, wash up, clean up, put some aftershave on and whatever, and pull a suit on. And now I have to go and walk into some big multinational and convince them they need to spend $25 million a year with me to buy a chain hoist that they're going to put in their catalog. Um, you know, so I think that made me a better person. Um, I did that for three years. Um, and very honestly, it just, the, the big organization thing didn't necessarily work for me at that time. Um, I think I'd be better suited to it now, I think from a maturity point of view, but I just struggled with it. Um, and, and again, politically, it was very difficult internally. You know, I had a lot of roadblocks thrown up in front of me from some of the other entities within the group and things like that, which were just frustrating. Again, because I was just used to being able to pick up the phone and, and making things happen. So I, I really, you know, it was a very, very informative time. I learned a hell of a lot about big, bigger businesses. I learned a lot about engineering practices and I learned a hell of a lot about chain hoods. Um, so, you know, again, I certainly don't regret it. Um, it was a, an experience. I, <clears throat> it, I traveled, you know, I, I don't travel a hell of a lot anymore. Um, one of my sort of go-to stories is I think one year at CM, I did 162 international flights in one 12 month period. Um, I lived in the UK, but my office was actually just outside Amsterdam. So even when I wasn't traveling, I would still do a commute of sorts. And obviously I wouldn't necessarily do it in the same day, but it would very often be, you know, it, it was like being on tour. It was, you know, Monday morning, wake up or even Sunday night, go to the airport. You know, I'd, I'd even got the retina scan thing down at Schiphol in Amsterdam where I literally, you know, I had, I didn't even take a bag. I took my laptop and, you know, my clothes were in Amsterdam already and I would just live out of a suitcase or live out of a, an apartment kind of thing. Right. But I, would, you know, I would know that if I, as long as I got out of bed at 5.04 and I was stepping in and my coffee was on at 5.08 and I was in the car at 5.14, I would be hitting the airport parking lot at this time and I would be, my foot would go in the door and the stewardess would greet me because she knows me and she would make sure I, she knew what I wanted to drink and whatever. And it was, it was that. And you know, like I say, for a while there, it was very cool. I got a lot of air miles and stuff. Um, but, you know, I also started to see me turning into, with, with all due respect, you know, I think every single one one of us that travels recognizes polo shirt and khaki man that sits across from you at the gate. Yeah. And you look at them and they're probably in their mid fifties and you're like, yeah, you're dead. You know, it's just like, and I didn't want to be that, you know? Um, and, and my son was born, um, he was born in 2003. So, you know, this sort of thing was, and I could see the writing on the wall and I saw, you know, I missed his first six months of his life. And obviously that's a massive development point you know in, in any you know child's life and it, literally i would go away for a couple of weeks and i'd come back and he was a different kid and he's like okay so we'd had an opportunity at that point for a long time potentially to come to the us um i don't have a degree as i mentioned before um that makes immigration um at that time and even probably even more difficult now with everything that's going on um very very difficult um unfortunately rightly or wrongly this country um, puts more weight behind a piece of paper than it does experience. Um, and I think a lot of countries do that now. So um, from an immigration point of view, you know, everybody thinks, oh, I'll just move to America and I'll just move to Europe. You know, I'm not going to get into the immigration, you know, conversation. That's a big old hot potato right now. But anybody that thinks that people can just come here and take our jobs, trust me, if you want to do it properly, and I appreciate that's a whole other conversation, it's not that difficult. So 
cut a long story short, I actually got an offer to move to California about a year or so before I left um, CM. Um, but it actually took about a year or so for us to get our ducks in a row from an immigration point of view. Um, we, we got our visa, I think it was like January the 6th or something. And that involves going down to the U S embassy and, you know, leaving all your electronics in the hotel room and, you know, sitting down and, and, and going through everything. We got our visa January the 6th. We emigrated from the UK on February the 13th. Um, and that meant putting our entire life in a 40 foot can selling all of our cars, selling our house, selling any electronics that wouldn't work in the U S you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then, like I say, just packing it in a can and, and get an airplane and come into the U S. Um, and I think that was a big thing for me, you know, that sort of exposed me to a lot of stress and things like that, you know, that, that have helped me in later life that everything is a little bit relative, you know? Um, so we got an opportunity, we got an opportunity, um, and that was to be a part of total again, in a come full circle. Um, yep. so I moved to sunny Southern California. Um, that was 2006, um, 14 years ago. Um, and like I say, we moved here in February of that year. Um, and I took over a job as vice president. Um, and generally the, the, the idea that total was, was that the, the two owners of the company, um, were, you know, at a point where, um, one of them wanted to move back to the UK. They were both Brits. One of them moved, wanted to move back to the UK in the short term. Um, the other one wanted to be able to retire in the medium term. Um, and the idea was to obviously give them the ability to do that by sort of becoming the third leg of the stool and sort of taking over operational sort of yep. control and whatever of the company. So moved out, uh, brought my, uh, my wife and, and my son with me. Um, then we had uh, a daughter. So we've got our own little American, um, but we've been out here, uh, like I say, 14 years. Um, yeah. Well, uh, you know, you guys, you know, uh, uh, let me just temper this by saying that we will hopefully become us citizens later this year. Um, the whole pandemic has, has, um, has, has obviously slowed all that down. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, obviously a lot of issues right now with the, the immigration service and everything. So um, we're still hopeful that we will become citizens. Um, hopefully before the election, because it'd be really cool to be able to vote um, straight away, you know, and just, yeah. be able to, you know, use our newfound uh, status. Um, yeah. But, you know, we, one way or the other, hopefully we'll become American citizens this year. Um, as I say, my daughter was born here, so she actually has dual. Um, you know, right. the UK is, is one of the, the countries that actually allows you to, I think they'll just get rid, glad to get rid of this, frankly. But, um, you know, they're one of the countries that actually allows us to have dual citizenship. So my daughter has, you know, an American and a British passport. Um, I was a little bit pissed off about Brexit, but that's another conversation. Um, so hopefully later this year, we will become Americans. Um, but, um, you know, it, it's, uh, I've learned a lot, a hell of a lot about American culture. You know, I really have. I think the perception of the US, you know, from outside, especially, you know, even from Brits that were relatively close. And we would spend a lot of time here on vacation and, my wife's mom and dad had a, had a house in Florida for a while and we would spend a lot of time there, especially when we were, I was at CM because we'd very often, you know, I would travel, I'd go away for a month and, and, and my wife would go to Florida for a month and, and sort of spend a month there. Then I would fly and meet her there kind of thing and try right. and take the weeks off. So we spent quite a bit of time, but again, I don't think it's until you're really, really immersed in it and you understand it. And the, and the way that I always say it is, you know, United States of America and this whole pandemic thing is, is probably even more, strengthen that belief is that you know frankly europe is probably more united even though they have different languages and different cultures and different religions europe is probably more united than the states is from a political point of view 
Um, you know, and again, the pandemic has been a stress test with all of that, with all of, you right. know, it's getting fragmented, not just even at a state level, on a county level or a city level or whatever, which has made it hard, you know. So been here 14 years. Um, the, the latest and greatest was um, 2018. Um, from a personal point of view, uh, late 2017, um, I was approached by the, the owner of, of, of Area 4 um, and, and generally asked if, if, if I would be interested in sort of helping him with this combination of the James Thomas and the Tomcat thing. Um, and most importantly, trying to see if we could open an operation on the West Coast. Um, to try and serve the, you know, the West Coast. When, when Tomcat was in Midland, like I said before, it was, it was a great, you know, distribution point um, because, you know, it was kind of in the middle. It was close to nowhere, but it was relatively central. It was three days to anywhere in the country. Right. Well, Knoxville's great now for the Southeast and the Northeast is not too bad, but as soon as you get anywhere over the Rockies, you're kind of screwed. So right. um, the idea was, was that he asked me, knowing that I lived here, um, to sort of see if we could open an operation here. So, cut long story short, you know, we've got a, a warehouse and, and a sales office now in, in, in Thousand Oaks, which just happens to be about six doors down from the old light and sound design building that 20 odd years ago I was sending icon moving lights to. And, and I got to choose where the building was in California. So, I guess, you know, when I saw 950 Lawrence Drive. Um, and recognized the street and was like, you know, I probably did get a bit sentimental and I probably leant towards this building more than I probably should have done. It's, um, but yeah, it's, it's you know. that expansion and now contraction. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it. it's, it's kind of cool. You know, it really is cool, but you know, and, and the latest thing for us is that, you know, pro pro light became part of the group um, at the end of last year. Um, and again, you know, they, there's, there's no mystique with this. They went bankrupt. You know, it, it's tough. You know, it really is yeah. hard. It, it, every, unfortunately, trust has become a commodity. It's up there with gaffer tape and road cases. You know, it, 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 we get that and we're not proud about it. We wish it wasn't the case. Um, I get really, really frustrated when I get nickel and dime by somebody for $5 on a piece of trust, knowing that they're going to hang a $20,000 moving light on it. You yeah. know, my, my analogy with that is always you don't go to the Ferrari dealer and then go and buy the cheapest tires that you can put on it. Um, you know, but I get it. You know, it, it, we're no different. We just, we're just not sexy. And that, that's our biggest threat from our, from, from our bubble within the bubble is, is that it's attracting new people to the industry. I think one, I think we have a problem in attracting people to the industry full stop. And I think the pandemic is only going to make that more difficult. Um, but secondly, we're kind of just, we're not, it's not very interesting for weirdos like you and I, it is, but to the average kid that's leaving, you know, college or full sale or whatever, you know what I mean? It's like, yep. you know, is this what's sexier video screens and audio engineering or even lighting design or hanging a piece of trust. Trust. Yeah. You know? And that's the problem. You know, and we know that we'll get, you know, we are, we are the reprobates. We are the circus. You know, we do get all those people. And I think we're all proud of that. Um, but it does, it does, it does concern me um, that where is that next generation going to come from? You know. Yeah. So, I think we're getting uh, close to uh, uh, you know ninety minutes here. Um, I certainly think you're going to be one of the uh, first two part guests. Um, at some point, we'll do another episode and we'll get into some more details about certain things. 
but as you said, now at Area 4, VP of, of Sales and Marketing with the different brands, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you the question that everybody's probably waiting for, and we'll finish with that. Uh-oh. And what I'll tell people is that Aiden and I will look at our schedules, and we will come up with another time to record soon, and we'll talk about more nuts and bolts things about trust in the trust industry. Cool. Um, because uh, it, the history of trust in our industry is a interesting story and deserves to you and all anyway. Maybe ah, everybody else just turned and, off. And that, again, but, with yeah. pandemic, it may be interesting to everybody, and now they all know. Yeah. So the the question I've asked that has stumped a few, but I have high hopes for you. What is your best or worst rigor joke? And I'll broaden it out. If there's trust jokes, you can tell those too. But. Um. This is probably very politically incorrect. It's not racist or anything like that, you know, but it's, you know, kind of a little bit sexist, I guess. So my wife's a rigger. I asked her the other night if she'd tie me up in the bedroom. She said, I'm afraid not. I gotta, I gotta do really bad. Yeah. It's afraid not. Yeah. That wasn't too bad. It, no, it's right. not nearly as bad as but, the, the, the one I told uh, for Eric and uh, Ed. Dealing with so I'm going to ask you a question. And maybe this question has yeah. already been asked. So I yeah. apologize if it has. And you can just edit this out if not. What's the deal with the music? Where's that come from? The uh, so I'm more than happy to ask. Um, that song I found through the internet, like everything else these days, yeah. uh, I actually Googled rigor song or bigger music that's a good start and it is one that i found and it's a catchy little tune that i thought was fun and i do get quite a few texts from friends in the industry who are like i hate you because that song is stuck in my head all week and then it comes to tuesday the next episode drops and there it is again yep and my answer to all those people is try editing with it because yeah i'm sure yeah yeah Oh, I thought it was really cool. It just amazed me that you found something with con- right, somewhat the right context, you know? Yeah, yeah, it, that's the tough, the tough part. And Do we know it, if it's entertainment or if it's nautical or what? Or don't it is actually oil platform. Yeah, okay. So um, the rest of the song is uh, having to deal with working on the oil platforms. Cool. But yeah, like and, and if there's some people listening who are great musicians, if we want to do a contest. And yeah, I was going to say, one of the true crime song. podcasts I listened yeah. to, that's what they did. You know, they threw it out yep. there. So, you know, my take on it is if, if, you have a, if you have a problem with it, you need to be part of the solution. So feel free to send in. Exactly. So, awesome. Well, Adrian, thank you very much for spending some time so far talking about you and the trust industry and the history. We will certainly do another one. Um, but I appreciate you spending time with me doing this. And for the uh, for our listeners, thanks for listening again. And until next time, keep the pen in the shackle. Son, you know your father was a rigger. A rigger was he. Son, the shoes you have to fill are bigger. As big as can be.